Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Lee Barton, and despite all that was said this morning by Josh and his kind remarks, I am a second stringer. You know, a second stringer comes in to relieve the first stringer when he needs a breather, and uh, he has two jobs. The first is to not fumble, to not foul up, and the second is to make the people that are watching so glad when the first stringer finally returns. So those are my objectives this morning. (laughs) Uh, My wife and I were missionaries in the Middle East, and um, their uh, man's name changes when his first son is born. He becomes Abu, father of, and then his son's name. So I was known as Abu Brett. A year ago, we came out from Oregon and uh, retired and came to this church, and I've come here, and I'm now known as Brett's dad. Nobody knows who I am, but they know I'm Brett's dad. And uh, that's actually been a comfortable transition for us, and we've enjoyed it. I've chosen this morning to speak out of the Gospel of John, and I've done so for a couple of reasons. The first is because I have, since I retired, been doing a personal study in John. It was a book as a pastor I always wanted to preach, but I never had the time to do it. And so I've been doing it, and it's been personally enriching. Travis has been speaking regularly here out of the book of Luke, which is a facet of a diamond looking at the life of Christ through the eyes of a man who researched and went and talked to eyewitnesses and gathered material to write to a friend named Theophilus and convince him of the truth of who Christ was. It's written from a Gentile perspective as... Uh, Travis has often pointed out. John is a complement to that book. It's another facet looking down into the diamond. John has a unique perspective, as you well know. He was an apostle, one of the first to follow Christ. He followed him all the way through his ministry, was there probably, or the only one of the apostles, at the cross as Christ died on the cross for Jesus committed his mother into his hands. He followed him from beginning to end. He was also one of the inner three, privileged to see certain things that Christ accomplished that nobody else saw. And so John gives us a perspective of one who was close to Christ, very close, and one who knew him intimately, one who observed him in moments when others did not have that privilege. One of his great observations came in the Garden of Gethsemane when Christ turned to the three and he said, he asked them to pray for him. The only time he asked anybody for anything was to ask them to pray for him. And John watched as Jesus sweat blood and was troubled by all that was taking place there. But his purpose in writing this gospel isn't to give you and I some insights John was the longest lived of the apostles. He wrote his gospel after the others had written theirs, and I'm sure he was familiar with their content. But he didn't write to just say, well, Peter and, and some of the others left out things in their gospel. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fill in some of the details. John has a totally different purpose. In fact, he tells us that purpose in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. We read there, now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. John's whole purpose in all that he brings forth, every witness from John the Baptist, the woman at the well, the man born blind, All of these incidents that he brings up are with the sole purpose of convincing us of one thing. This is not just a man. This is God incarnate. This is the Son of God. And knowing that, he challenges us then to believe in him, to follow him, to become his disciples. I think it's because of John's stated purpose because of the fact that he was such a close man in all these incidents that we have liberal scholarship in every cult that's ever existed challenging the veracity and the validity of this testimony in this book. 
John begins with a bang. In John 1, he presents Jesus as the creator. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and nothing came into being that has come into being except through him. He presents John as the word made flesh and dwelling among men, displaying the glory of God, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He presents Jesus as God's promised lamb who would give his life on behalf of the sheep, and he challenges his own disciples to follow him. He presents Jesus as the master of the elements, turning water into wine to make a celebration which is symbolic and meaningful to our relationship with him, also transforming five small loaves and two fish into 12 baskets left over. He presents Jesus as the only means of salvation, first to a religiously proud man named Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and then to a, a shunned woman at a well in Sychar in John chapter 4. He presents Jesus as equal to the Father, doing the very works of the Father, speaking the very words of the Father without distinction. He presents Jesus as the living water and the light of the world. And then he presents him as the resurrection and the life, the one through whom he will one day call all out of the graves to their eternal reward. John is presenting his arguments, and as he does so, seven times he records Jesus' personal declarations of deity. You ever question yourself and say, did Jesus ever say he was God? John's gospel thunders that this is God. Seven times at least, really nine that we could point to, John says that Jesus made the declaration, I am. And in doing so, he declared, I am God. That's the familiar, you're familiar with the background of these I am statements. You're too well taught not to be, but you remember that it was first spoken as a designation of God when he described himself as the I am to Moses on that mountain in Sinai. God had called Moses to go and lead the people out of bondage after 400 years and imprisonment in Egypt. And as he calls him to the task, Moses is reluctant. He doesn't want to do this thing. He is left there under fear of his life. He has now been on the backside of the desert just watching sheep tails wiggle, and he doesn't have any confidence left to him anymore. And part of his fear is that when the people ask him, who are you and who is he who has sent you, what will he say? Who is this one who has appeared to him in a bush that burns but is not consumed? And so he asks God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The designation I am is the proclamation of God's own self-existence, of his self-sufficiency, of his eternality. Each time Jesus declared himself, I am, he was declaring himself to be God. And this nuance wasn't lost upon the Jews. They weren't unaware of what he was saying. Several times they took great offense at that. In John 8:58, we read, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And again, in John 10, 31 through 33, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus said to them, I showed you many good works from my father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Each declaration was deliberate. Each not only declared, I am God, but if you read the text carefully, Jesus accompanied every declaration with an absolute infallible proof of the statement of who he was. 
In John um, chapter 8, we have, I am the light of the world. And he gave sight and light to a blind man, a man born blind. In John 11, he declared, I am the resurrection and the life. He then stood outside the tomb of a man who had been dead for four days and called him forth and back to life. What a testimony Lazarus must have had. In John chapter 6, he fed 5,000 with those loaves I spoke of a minute ago, and he proclaimed, I am the bread of life. Not just giving you bread as your forefathers had in the wilderness who perished afterwards, but I am here to give you spiritual life, eternal life. And he declared himself to be that bread. Today in our study, I had intended to lead us through two more of those passages. The passages in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd, I am the door. But there's something about this pulpit. You get in the word and it's like oatmeal. It just starts swelling. And I found that I'll probably only touch on those two statements. I'm not going to get there. I'm only going to get to the prologue, but the information there is so important. But let's read through the context of what we're going to talk about this morning. If you're there in John chapter 10, let's read verses 1 through 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, he does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way. He is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A shepherd they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of, of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what these things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, as we pick up this passage and we begin to break it down, we always have to understand the context in which it was spoken. Jesus wasn't a Hindu faker who walked around and suddenly had some ecstatic thing come over him and blurted out some incomprehensible saying. He spoke these things deliberately. Everything Jesus did was deliberate. If you read through the scriptures and you study his life, you never see him reacting. You only see him acting. He's aware of all that's going on around him. He's very deliberate in all that he does. These declarations, I am the door, I am the good shepherd. They don't arise in a vacuum. The contents of chapter 10 follow sequentially and chronologically the events in chapter 9. In chapter 9, he has healed a man who is born blind. That incident is still fresh in the minds of the people, even as he utters the contents of chapter 10. For we read down in chapter 10, verses 19 through 21, a division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? But others were saying, These are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Our shepherd, our Lord, declares himself to be the door. He declares himself to be the good shepherd. And these statements are accompanied by a miracle of the healing of this man and they are very much in view as the people listen to these words. So what's the connection, we ask? What prompted this teaching and these declarations? Our Lord's made these declarations in response to the treatment of the Jews of those under them. Now John is very specific. When he uses the word the Jews, he always is referring to the authorities, the leaders the shepherds, the priests, the, the, um, the king, and the, the political leaders. He's referring to these 
as the enemies of Christ, and he designates them the Jews, those in opposition to Christ. What action of the Jews had prompted Jesus to declare himself to be the door or to be the good shepherd? It's been the treatment of the leadership of those underneath them. Back in chapter 5, Jesus says, Come upon a man who is crippled and has lain by the pool Bethesda for 38 years. It was said at times that an angel would sit on the waters of the pool and stir them up. And upon such an occasion, the first person to enter the waters would receive a healing. This man had been awaiting such a miracle for 38 years, apparently all but helpless and all but hopeless. When Jesus asked him if he wanted to be made well, he had replied and said, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Our Lord heals him to the astonishment of all who are listening. Are the Jews, the leaders of Israel, ecstatic about this? Are they excited about what is happening? No, not at all. They see the man, no doubt enthusiastically, carrying his pallet at Jesus' command, and they're unable to see the miracle. But here is a wounded sheep who was laying on a prison bed of that pallet for 38 years, suddenly able to pick it up and carry it in exultant joy. And all they can say is, you're bearing a burden on the Sabbath. That is not honoring to God. Could you imagine being completely healed from a disease like that? And somebody comes along and says, you can't rejoice in God. He wouldn't have you carry around a pallet on his holy day. And who was this man who healed you? How did he do so? And by what right? Healing can be done on the other six days, not on this day. Those are genuine caring people, aren't they? But closer to our context, we have John chapter 9. We have... Jesus, who has come upon a man who is born blind, he has healed him. In the process, Jesus has demonstrated he is the creator. Eyes that didn't reflect light. Eyes that didn't absorb light. Who, a man who had dwelt in darkness is suddenly restored to the magnificent glory of all of creation before his eyes. That which he had felt with his hands, he could suddenly view with his eyes. The beautiful colors, the temple, and everything else. Are the Jews delighted? Are they ecstatic that this man has been made whole? Are they even amazed? Not at all. When the formerly blind man reasons with them, they cast him out from the temple and from worship. A man who has been ill who hasn't been able to enter the temple because of that illness, because they viewed him as a cursed one by God, has been healed, restored, and able to enter into the worship. And in doing so, because he was healed on a Sabbath, they cast him out. Why? Because he reasoned with them. He says in John 9, 31 through 34, listen, we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And what is the response to this one who has not only been touched by Jesus' healing, but who has reasoned that this man has to be more than just a, an ordinary man or a false prophet, what is their response? They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and you're teaching us? So they put him out. No concern for the sheep whatsoever. They despise those over whom they have been given watch. Back in chapter 7, they had spoken of this rabble who was beginning to follow him, and they'd called them just that, a rabble, ignorant of the law 
and accursed by God. They saw themselves as superior. The one thing that's a sad thing about standing up here is I'm looking down on you all. And that's only so you can hear me and make fun of the way I dress. It's not for any other reason. But it really, a pastor, a shepherd, is one among you. He is one shepherded by God, and he is one being shepherded in the same way you are. He is a sinful man who daily must repent of his own sin. He is a man who must watch his own proclivities towards self-indulgence and selfishness. And he can only preach to you having come to God and having sought his forgiveness for all of those things and then stand up and stand on not his authority but the authority of the word. They only cared that they were in a position of authority and they guarded that authority jealously. Such sentiments prove that they despise the sheep given to them. Okay, that's the background to our passage. For those of you who are keeping track of the time, start your clocks now. This is the sermon, okay? <laughs> I'm sorry, but you have to give the background, or you won't understand why this all came about, right? Of course, right. <laughs> Looking at John 10, then, let's read those first six verses. That's where we're going today. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he's a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd to the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had spoken. Now there's a lot I want to say about this, but let me draw your attention to uh, verse 6. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them. It's an expression that's figurative, a figure of speech in Scripture and even in our own talk picture is one thing, but it has an underlying meaning. We do that kind of thing all the time. We speak of someone, we say, he's a mountain of a man. Now try that on through ears that where English is not your first language. Or try this one, she's a knockout. If I didn't know English, I'd say that's a dangerous woman, <laughs> you know? He's trying to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. That one would fly right by. You wouldn't have any idea what he was saying. Or how about this one? Ah, he kicked the bucket. You all know what I mean, but nobody from a different culture would know what you mean. We use those figures, and they have to fit into our society. Just recently, my wife was talking to a good friend of ours, and she is quite concerned for her mother-in-law, who is advancing in age and declining in health rather rapidly. She and her husband both, and they're living on a large piece of property and a large home and, and not being able to take care of it. And as she was describing her mother-in-law's declining health, she said to, her, my, to my wife, she's really circling the drain. Now you guys go, ooh, that's horrible. She loves her mother-in-law. She's just being picturesque, descriptive, because what happens when things go down the drain? Hopefully they don't come back up, you know? She means that she is, she's dying, and she can't recognize that. We use figures of speech all the time, and that's what Jesus is doing in this passage, and it's our joy to try to understand exactly what he's talking about. The passage on the surface is fairly straightforward, but the people were confused in hearing it. Why? Because they didn't understand the analogy being given. They didn't understand what the figures represented and how they fit into the context of all Jesus was talking about. He speaks of sheep. He speaks of a sheepfold. He speaks of thieves and robbers, of a shepherd, of a doorkeeper. It, Jesus is describing here in this passage a typical pastoral scene, very familiar to his agrarian audience. They would have been familiar with shepherds and sheep. For convenience, Oftentimes, sheep in a village were herded together into a single fold where many flocks mixed and integrated. There'd be but one way in and out of the fold, 
and that would be guarded by a doorkeeper or probably one of the shepherds because most often they took turns doing that. So that's, the picture is familiar. The people understand the words, but they don't understand what Jesus is referring to. What do these figures of speech mean? Who are the sheep? Well, this would be the people of Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, that imagery was commonly used speaking of God's people. This morning we read Ezekiel 34. The imagery there is plain. Once again, out of Ezekiel 34, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. And he goes on. He's speaking of the sheep of Israel as the sheep of God, the people of God. The sheeple, if you will. The sheep are Israel. The shepherds are also, or the sheepfold is also pictured there. The sheepfold that Jesus has come to as the good shepherd is Judaism. It's the dry and barren husk of a religion that it has become. The sheepfold was meant to be a secure place for the sheep. Sheep need a, a place of rest where they can sit and regurgitate their food and chew their cud to get the, the nourishment out of that dry stuff that they've been eating. And they're barren places. So many sheep have gathered over the years. My wife and I, when we were in Egypt, didn't visit a sheepfold, but we visited a camel market. Do you know what a camel market is? It's a pile of dung with people walking around on top of it. Over the centuries, as they brought the camels into this place, they had all defecated, and it had been tromped down. The stuff was at least two foot deep as we walked around on it. And when the wind blew, you didn't smile. <laughs> because you would, uh, you would have not have parsley in your teeth. Sheep clothes are barren places. Sheep cannot exist in them. When I was in Egypt, um, we were staying at Mount Sinai at St. Catherine's Monastery. One morning, early in the morning, I rose and got up and climbed one of these, what I thought was a mountain, turned out to be a, a ridge. And I got to the top of this thing to watch the sun come up and to pray. And I looked down the other side and I saw a sheepfold. It was about two miles down in this valley, as best I could estimate. But the sound was crystal clear, and you could see all that was taking place down in there. And the sheepfold itself was a structure of rock and brush that had been built up over the years, and herd after herd, or flock after flock, had been brought into this place. There wasn't a green thing growing anywhere in that sheepfold. In fact, there wasn't a green thing growing anywhere in that valley. So many sheep had come through there and grazed and grazed, and their sharp hooves had cut the grass and cut the grass to where it was nothing but a dust pile waiting for a wind to move it from one side to the other. That's what sheepfolds are like. Sheep can't prosper there. They can rest. They can find security and peace. But in order to prosper, they have to be put out. They have to get out of the fold. The sheepfold of Israel had become a barren and sterile place devoid of life. And Jesus came to call his own out of that sheepfold. He says of the leaders of Israel that they are thieves and robbers. Verse 1 of chapter 10 there says, He who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he's a thief and a robber. The thieves and robbers Jesus spoke of are the illegitimate shepherds who exploited the sheep. Jesus describes them further in verse 10. He says, the thief comes only to kill and to destroy. In our Lord's context, the thieves and robbers he would have been talking about would have made a, a direct reference to Israel's leadership. There was King 
Herod Antipas, on Israel's throne, a false ruler. He had been appointed by Rome, had gained his seat there of power through bribery and murder and deceit. The religious leaders were no better. Annas and Caiaphas are written about in the New Testament. They're the ones who put Jesus on trial. They were the high priests at the time, and though descended from Aaron, they were not legitimate rulers. They were political appointees of Rome because they would play ball with Rome. They prospered by implementing Rome's rules, by limiting their people to doing that which Rome demanded. This group had become so greedy that at the cleansing of the temple by Jesus, the cleansing was described by Josephus, the Jewish historian writing for Rome. That area he cleansed was called the marketplace of Annas. Caiaphas, his son-in-law, personally controlled the temple merchants. He sold concession space to the highest bidder. And then, as they charged the people for a sacrificial animal, for incense to offer, to exchange money, they did it at exorbitant prices. It was said during the time of Annas that even the poor could not afford a dove from the temple. A simple bird, they couldn't afford even a sparrow because he skimmed the profits off the top and took a percentage of every exchange that was made in the temple. Further than that, Caiaphas himself owns large flocks of sheep which pastured on the plains near Bethlehem. If a pilgrim brought his own sheep, he had to submit it to the temple authorities and they would inspect it. Invariably, they'd find a flaw. And they would tell the person, this sheep is not acceptable to sacrifice to our God. You must purchase one of those which has been properly looked at and properly cared for. So they would go and they would exchange their sheep for one of Caiaphas's sheep and use that as an offering, losing on both ends of the exchange as Caiaphas then turned that sheep around, painted a mark on it of some kind, and put it back in the flock to fleece the next a pilgrim that came along. Even further, Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. Thieves wanted the wool and meat of the sheep. Not being able to get access to them in the proper way, they climbed up another way. And they couldn't get the sheep out alive, so they would slaughter it and slit its throat and throw it over the wall. And then they would sell the wool and the meat, or keep the meat and eat it themselves. No wonder Jesus described these leaders and denounced them in Matthew 23, 14. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses. This picture of the truth that the priests were aware of the condition of the people. A widow would lose her husband and all means of support. Desperate, she would begin to sell off things that she owned. Most precious and last the security of her own home, she would be desperate to sell. The priest would hold off until she was absolutely desperate and then swoop in, buy it for a pittance, kick her out into the street, and then sell it to somebody else at great profit. They had no interest in the sheep. That's why Jesus, when he comes and he says, I am the good shepherd, it's against that. It's a contrast to all of that that he is coming and talking about that. So we've seen who the sheep are, we've seen who the sheepfold is, and we also know who the, the false shepherds are. The good shepherd is obviously Jesus. In verses 7 through 21, particularly, he makes that abundantly clear. His declaration to be the good shepherd is in fulfillment to what was written in Ezekiel chapter 34 that we read. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds. I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding my sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will shepherd my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his flock in the day when he is among the scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep 
and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered. I will feed my flock and lead them to rest. I will seek the lost and bring them back. I will feed them. I will set myself over them. I will set one shepherd over them, my servant David. He will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my shepherd David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Did you notice the pronouns? He's saying that he, God, will personally come. He will be among the people. He will shepherd them. He will do that in the flesh, personally, and living. The fulfillment of that promise is our Lord Jesus Christ, Israel's Messiah, our Savior, the greater son of David. When Jesus proclaims himself to be the good shepherd, he's claiming to be the fulfillment of all that Ezekiel had prophesied there. God in the flesh come down to shepherd the flock of God. Now, how do we know he's really the one? How do we know he is Israel's Messiah? How do we know that he wasn't a forerunner like John the Baptist was. We know because the doorkeeper verifies that he is. Listen to verse 2 there in chapter 10. He who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens. Who is the doorkeeper? This is an intriguing question. Jesus will soon call himself the door, leaving behind the imagery of the doorkeeper. The door is a different image. So the doorkeeper isn't our Lord. Who is it? Before we answer that, we have to understand the importance of the doorkeeper. Often in larger towns or villages, the sheepfold housed multiple flocks, as I said, and shepherds would set a guard there at the door. Their job was to prevent anyone from entering into the sheep and messing with them. The only one who could come into the sheep was a legitimate shepherd who had a right to be there. So the doorkeeper authenticated and verified the shepherd for who he was. Who's the doorkeeper? Who admits and legitimizes the shepherd who comes to the sheep? There have been speculation about this. Some have said it was John the Baptist. He was the final prophet of Israel. He came to announce that Jesus was the Lamb of God. He came to say he was not the light, but that Jesus was the light and that men were to follow him. Was he the door? Was he the authenticator of Christ? I think he was one in a series of many. I think it's a broader term than that. I think the doorkeeper here is the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. It's them that gave legitimacy to Christ as the good shepherd. They certainly spoke of the Messiah. They certainly described his character. They certainly told us what to look for when Messiah came in such a clear way that the Jews should have known. Do you remember when Jesus was questioned by John the Baptist? John was in prison, and he was not being treated well by Herod. And he did not see Jesus leading forth the armies of Israel to overthrow this crooked regime. He was not happy with the way Jesus was conducting his ministry, and in prison he began to doubt. Never doubt in the dark what you knew to be true in the light. But he was doubting. So he sent his disciples and they, they asked Jesus, are you the one to come or shall we look for another? How did Jesus answer them? He answered out of Isaiah 35. He didn't say, I am he. You know, and here's how you'll know. Watch me turn water into wine or something like that. Instead, he answered out of the scriptures. Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. He appealed to the, to the scriptures as verification for who he was because his ministry was filled with all of those things that were predicted of Messiah. Additionally, Jesus wasn't dependent on John's testimony or that of any other man. He said to his disciples, you have sent to John and he has testified to the truth, but the testimony I receive is not from men, 
but the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which your Father has given me to accomplish, these very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify of me. He wasn't disparaging John. He was saying there's a greater testimony. John is a piece of it, but the scriptures verify who I am. Then after the resurrection, two of the disciples were fleeing town, headed for Emmaus. Jesus joins them on the journey and asks, what is the things you are discussing? And they look at him like an ignorant peasant and say, how could you be unaware of all that has been taking place in these days? And talking about Jesus being crucified, Jesus speaks to them. He says, oh, foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explains them the things concerning himself and the scriptures. The law and the prophets are the doorkeeper. They're the ones that verified who he was. They're very specific. They had predicted that Messiah must be born of the tribe of Judah, and he was. Of the lineage of David, and he was. He had to be born in Bethlehem, and he was. He had to be born of a virgin, as prophesied by Isaiah, and he was. He had to do certain signs all the way through the Gospel of Matthew, 12 specific times. Matthew writes something like this. Then it was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet. Or this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Twelve specific times he points out how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. More than double that, he alludes to other passages that point to who Jesus was. The law and the prophets speak of Jesus as the Messiah. One scholar has found 365 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his first coming. One scholar, Dr. Peter Stoner, former chairman of mathematics and astronomy at the Department of Pasadena City College and chairman of science division at Westmont College, found 61 very exacting, very specific prophecies that Jesus literally fulfilled, which could not have come through anything other than the sovereignty of God being in charge of it all. Those would include the prophecy in Micah 5.2 that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Or in Psalm 22 that while the Savior was being crucified, men gambled for his clothing. That isn't a miracle or that isn't a prophecy that Jesus could have arranged to have fulfilled. What do you think? He told the soldiers after they'd beaten him nearly to death. Now remember, guys, when I'm on the cross take out some dice and gamble for my clothing. He couldn't have done that, and he didn't do it. Yet another was that he'd be betrayed by an innocent friend, sold for 30 pieces of silver, which Judas did. And then that 30 pieces of silver would be used to buy a potter's field for the burial of the poor. Dr. Stoner, after identifying 61 prophecies that fit his rather strict parameters for specificity, calculated the odds of any one man being able to fulfill not 61, but just eight of those 61 prophecies. Just eight of them being fulfilled by one man. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, 61 prophecies, that's really not very many. And then to reduce it to eight, I mean, couldn't John Henry Morris just go ahead and fulfill it like that? I mean, that seems like it'd be fairly easy to do. Well, Dr. Stoner did the calculations of any one individual man fulfilling eight detailed prophecies, and he concluded that that would be equivalent to 1 in 10 to the 17th power, or one chance in 10 followed by 17 zeros. Now, for those of you who are visual and aren't good at math, let me put this in visual terms. Dr. Stoner said that would be equivalent covering the state of Texas, knee-deep in silver dollars, painting one silver dollar black, putting it in a helicopter, 
flying it randomly over the state of Texas and at some point, at the will and whim of the pilot, throwing it out the window. Then gathering a man and blindfolding him and sending him walking across Texas. And at his whim and will, stooping down on the first try, plucking that one black silver dollar from among all the rest. If you ever have somebody that challenges you about the validity of Jesus Christ as God's anointed Son of God, truck out that illustration. Tell them to calculate the odds. Virtually impossible. The scriptures verify this is the good shepherd. This is the one who's come in fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 34. None other need apply. No other man will ever qualify to fulfill this position. Having identified the meaning of these different figures in Jesus' analogy, let's look closely at the shepherd himself. What does Jesus say about himself? He says in, in verse 3 of John chapter 10, To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A peculiar ritual takes place every morning on a daily basis in the sheepfolds of the Middle East. And I was privileged that morning when I was up there on that hill in Mount Sinai and looking down in the sheepfold to see it unfold before me. There was a little hut beside the sheepfold, which isn't always prominently there. But as I watched early in the morning, while the dew is still on the grass because there is no water in that sheepfold. The sheep have to get out and start grazing because they pick up moisture from the dew and that helps them to digest during the day before the shepherd can lead them to a, uh, a seep of some kind. I watched a figure come out of the, um, the hut that was next to the sheepfold, open the gate, it turned out to be a shepherdess, not a shepherd, and I heard this peculiar guttural sound wafted up to me at the top of the mountain in that still air. It's sort of a... And I'm telling you, that's a poor imitation. But it was something like that. And it came wafting up to me, and I watched. And after a while, here and there, one sheep, two sheep, three sheep, began to stand up and make their way over to the shepherdess. Then she leaned down as each sheep came and she held its head. She seemed to look in its ears. She seemed to examine its face. And then she felt all around in its body and then she put it out. Now the sheep were reluctant to go outside the fold. She had to pull them out and put them out. And some of them tried to get back in, jumping back through the narrow place where she was. There was only one flock in that fold at that time. So I didn't see her sheep from among the others that were in there standing up and the others staying put. But I've seen that on, on YouTube. You can go on YouTube and see a shepherd or a shepherdess come to a fold that has multiple flocks and call and only certain sheep will stand up while the others sit there quietly. And this shepherdess then put these sheep out and she had been calling them. Then as they went out, they began immediately, those who were outside, while she's still looking at the others, to scatter, already looking for food and fodder. After she'd put them all out, she began to call again. And I saw her call one that had wandered quite a ways away and give a different call. And that sheep turned and responded and came back to her. I think that's calling that sheep by name. Flocks in the Middle East are not huge, some of the sheep have been with the shepherd for a long time, and the shepherd has named them, just like we name our dog or our cat or our bird or, or whatever we have, even our grandkids. We, we call them particular names, you know, and it's usually based on the character of, of our dog or our cat or whatever it is or what we hope it will become. So a sheep might be called Blackie or Round Nose or Crooked Foot, but the name is personal and it's individual. And the sheep know their particular name. It's always amazed me that our Lord Jesus renamed Peter. 
when he saw him. Remember that first encounter? Andrew has listened to the words of Jesus. He goes and gets his brother, and he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John, but you shall be called Cephas. The naming process throughout Scripture is a declaration of authority. It's a declaration in truth of ownership. Remember back in Genesis 2.19, God had created the world. He had filled it with animals and all kinds of things. He had then made man out of the dust of the earth and set him in the garden. And then the man was given the right and privilege of calling the animals to himself. And as he called them to himself, he would name each one of them. And what he named it, that is what it became. God gave Adam the rights of naming and so doing bequeathed to him authority and ownership over all his creatures. One mark of ownership was this naming done by Adam. When Jesus says, Simon, son of John, you shall be called Cephas, he's claiming authority to rename him. He's claiming ownership of him. And he gives him a name that is interesting. Peter is vacillating, mercurial. You're never quite sure what he's going to blurt out and what he's going to do. He is anything but stable. Cephas means little pebble, rock. And Peter became, under the guidance of Jesus, a stable rock upon which everyone could depend. He renamed him. To the members of two churches in Pergamum and Philadelphia, in the book of Revelation, Christ promises to give those who overcome new names. To Pergamum, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name, written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. It's personal. I've watched you. I've guided you as your shepherd. I know you. This is how you will be called for all eternity. When men call your name, it will be based on this characteristic that I've seen in your life. Then he says to the church of Philadelphia, He overcomes, I will give him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my flock and my new name. I believe this will happen to all of us. I believe that God is watching over us. That reception we're going to receive when we come into heaven, closing our eyes here upon the earth for the last time, when Jesus greets us, he's going to say, you are Leland, son of Buzz but you shall be called, what will I be called? Will I be called recalcitrant? Will I be called hesitant? Will I be called fearful? Or one that maybe my wife would agree with, stubborn? Or could it be that I might be called bold or courageous or faithful or enduring or joyful? Just something to think about as you leave today. What kind of a name are you acquiring as the shepherd seeks to lead you and you balk or wander or you adhere and you obey? What kind of a name are you acquiring? Our passage, and John goes on, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Notice, coupled with what we've said, his sheep, he calls his own by name, he also leads them out. When he puts forth his own, he says, that is an interesting statement. He calls us by name and he puts us out. You know what that is? It's election. He calls his own. Jesus came to the people of Israel he made himself known by his works and by his words. Some responded like the man born blind. 
Who is he, Lord, that I may worship him? And he bowed down and worshiped him. But the Pharisees sought to kill him. There's a division taking place. He's not calling all the sheep. He's calling some of the sheep. He's calling the particular ones, the ones he's called and elected, the ones who are called according to his purposes. He's chosen them. The scripture tells us that many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus says further in our chapter, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given to me, them to me, and he was greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That's election, plain and simple. He calls all. Only some respond. The ones who respond are the elect. Once you're belong to his flock, though, Nothing can take you away from it. I've heard people say, well, no one can snatch me out of his hand, but I can walk out if I want to. He holds the universe in his hand. You've got a long walk ahead of you. you know? You're not getting out. You can't even do it by your own will. You didn't get into it by your own will. You're not getting out of it by your own will. Amen? I wish I had time to elaborate on that more, but I have other sheep to fleece. No. <laughs> I've said that the sheep are reluctant to leave the fold. It's a secure place, a place of rest, and so forth, but it's a harsh place. But the sheep don't want to leave the confines of that, that place because it's a place of rest. It says there that he has to put them out. Putting them out is our old friend ekbalo. That's the term from the Greek that Travis talked about last week. The words sound gentle in English, but they're not so in Greek. The word puts forth is our old friend there, ekbalo. Travis spoke of it. Ek is a preposition meaning out, away from. Balo is the verb meaning to cast or to thrust. The word depicts a forceful action. It's the same word that Jesus used when he cast out demons. He didn't just gently say, why don't you guys go hang out someplace else? He said, get out of here. Leave him, her alone. And they were expelled, forced out. It's the word that was used when the Spirit took our Lord and drove him, according to Mark, into the wilderness. Not because Jesus was reluctant to obey the Father, but because all that lay before him was very hard. And he had to be moved, like you and I have to be moved. Jesus has to put us out. He has to pull us out of our comfort zone. That's what he did to every one of you that have claimed him as Savior. He had to forcefully go against your will. Your natural will is enmity with God. He is your enemy. You will do anything to avoid him. Have you got a neighbor that you've tried to share Christ with? And you begin to talk about the church. You begin to talk about anything of your faith. And you get, oh man, I got things to do. You know, the guy's been retired for 14 years. He hasn't done a thing in six of them. And he's, you know, he's got things to do suddenly because you begin to talk about that. We don't want to come to Christ. We don't want to follow him. We want to go our own way. We want to follow our own will. He has to call us. He has to put us out of our old life. And then, out there in the world, where it's dangerous and uncomfortable, we have to follow him, because he's all there is. When I was watching that sheepfold there in Egypt, that bowl was probably about four miles across, and it was nothing green growing anywhere. There wasn't a blade of grass. Too many sheep had grazed that place. Too many hooves had cut it down. For two miles out of that fold, the shepherdess led those sheep, and they followed her up and over a brow of another hill, and I couldn't see where they went after that. Every step raised a dust cloud in that still air because the ground was just absolutely barren. Sometimes the Lord leads you and I over ground that is barren, over ground that is uncomfortable, on a journey we did not want to take. We are like Peter Jesus said, when you were young, you used to gird your loins and go where you will. When you're old, 
they will come and take you where you do not want to go. Some of us are old enough to begin to fulfill those words. They will take us where we don't want to go sometimes. There are journeys God's going to take you on because that's what he wants to do to shape you. Those sheep had to follow the shepherdess up over the hill, believing that somewhere in that journey there was good grass. Somewhere on that journey there was water flowing. Somewhere there were the things that they needed. But they couldn't see it. They couldn't see it from where they were. They had to trust the shepherdess. You and I are in the same position. This ought to hit home for some of us. It's, we're lonely. We're a widow, a widower. We get tired of eating our meals, simple as they might be, all by ourselves. We're a young single. We'd like to be married. We'd like to have somebody to hold us and to tell us the truths of their lives while we tell them the truths of our lives. And there doesn't seem to be an answer coming and the disco down the street or whatever they call it today looms. We desire those things. Sometimes there's an illness that comes on us and it's a debilitating thing. The arthritis begins to curve our spine or make our joints unable to function. Our legs grow weak and we don't have good digestion. Or maybe it's the big C, cancer. We say, why, Lord? The shepherd hasn't stopped leading us. He's taking us on a journey that is not in the moment comfortable. But in that, he's building a character within us that will glorify him for all eternity. This is the journey. He is the shepherd. We have to trust that he is good. And as he leads, he will take us on that journey. And we will be glad he did once it is over. We will be so glad he used us in that way. He goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. I'm anthropomorphizing a bit here, but as those sheep are plodding along, breathing the dust of the ones in front of them, they know there's a long, hard journey ahead of them. And all they have is that little voice, the voice of that shepherdess, calling, cajoling, moving forward at a steady pace. Where do we hear Jesus' voice for us today? Can I step on some toes? It's not in Sarah Young's book, Jesus Calling. That book is the deceptive book. I hope none of you are paying attention to that and have your little notebook and writing down what you think Jesus has said to you that day. This is where you're going to find his voice. Somebody has said that 90% of what we need to know about God's will is found here. If we'll busy ourselves doing the 90%, the other 10 will come, after, come and fall in line for us. If God has a specific thing he wants you to do, something clearly he wants to lead you to do, he will lead you through this, or he will make it abundantly clear where he wants you to go. Sarah Young has said that she did not find the scriptures adequate that they were insufficient. She wanted something more. There isn't anything more. This is the voice of the shepherd. It's here you'll find what he wants you to do, where he wants you to go, how he wants you to live. He's spoken to us and he continues to do so. Shame on you if you're not wearing out Bibles. If you haven't got so many places underlined and so many notes written that you can't hardly find space for something new. This is the living and active word of God. It's the feeder of our spirits. It's here he will give us what we need to know. You know, I was a pastor. I was a missionary. I was one of those anointed ones that, you know, people talk about, you must be so much better than me. Nah. Every day I read these scriptures, and you know what I find? I find Lee the sinner. I find Lee the man saved by grace. I find Lee, the one who is in need of transformation. You know, I've come out here to be a grandfather and a father to my son and my daughter. Do you know how many times I get mad at them? 
you know how many times I, I just go, what in the world did I do coming out here for this kind of abuse? Not that they abuse me, but because they don't do things the way I think they should. They don't run their railroad the way I run my railroad, you know. And what I find in myself is a man who needs to shut up, trust the sovereignty of God, and pray a whole lot more and say a whole lot less. I find God continually convicting me, and I find him encouraging me. You know, he's making me into somebody that's going to glorify him forever and ever. I get to stand before the saints. I get to stand before him and testify to all that he did in my life. And I get to cause the angels to understand just a little bit more of what it means to be saved by grace. That's you and me. We're the sheep of this pasture. We are the sheep of another fold. Not of Israel, but one beyond that. Let me just close by saying this. Ezekiel finishes this passage. Then they will know, then we will know, that I, the Lord their God, am with them. That they, all of my people, are the sheep of my pasture. As for you, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, you are men, and I am your God, dwelling among us. What do you take from this? You take from it that Jesus is the Savior. There is no other. All others are false shepherds. You take from it the knowledge that he knows you by name. He is conforming you to the image of his son. You take from it that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. He will never give up on you. You can never so dissuade him of your love that he will cast you out. He has drawn you to himself and he will and is and always will be your Lord in your God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us this brief look into what it means to be sheep in your pasture. Thank you for loving us and caring for us. Bless us as we leave from here that we might be filled with the knowledge of your loving kindness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.